Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We currently have a bonus episode about what we're watching on television lately, and we have more bonus episodes on the way about baseball movies and about how Keith and I have introduced movies to our children. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Genevieve Kosky. Keith Phipps. And Tasha Robinson. With American movie theaters largely closed, we're continuing to focus on quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're putting on our masks, heading up a dusty mountain pass, and searching for gold. We're going prospecting! You know, that actually sounds like a pretty good idea. We've been cooped up at home for months and none of us have seen each other in person since late February. As long as we take the proper precautions and maintain social distancing, I think spending some time outdoors would be healthy and fun. Yeah, I'm in the mode of thinking that Scott's never read about anything, but in this case, I'm really ready for an adventure. Besides, I have spent so much time in quarantine perfecting my prospecting jigs. And the best part is, we trust each other. We've worked closely together for years. It's like we're second family. So when it comes time to fence the gold and split the loot, none of us will be seized by greed, paranoia, or madness. Each of us gets one quarter fair and square. Uh, Wait, wait, I'm writing the script for this bit. Plus the keynote, plus the introduction to next week's show. All you three had to do was watch the movies. I think I'm entitled to more than a fourth. Uh, Hold on a second, Scott. I produce the podcast and edit all the episodes. Do you know how many hours it takes just to iron out all your ums and false starts? You realize we're sarcastic when we call you one take Tobias, right? You're lucky I don't claim all the gold for myself. You know, Keith says we trust each other, but he's looking pretty shifty over there. How do we know he's not just going to wait until we fall asleep and then steal off with our burrows in the middle of the night? Keith, what do you have to say for yourself? Uh, just maybe we're not cut out to be prospectors. Maybe we should just stay inside and talk about the movies instead. Fine. You know, that seems safer anyway. What have we got this week, Keith? Well, the new Spike Lee joint on Netflix, Defy Bloods, is an action-adventure about four African-American war veterans who reunite in present-day Vietnam. Their mission is both sentimental and opportunistic. Striking out into the jungles where they risked their lives 50 years earlier, they seek to find the remains of a fallen comrade. They also want to find a fortune in gold they'd buried nearby which naturally raises some suspicions between them. The second element of the story owes a debt to John Huston's 1948 classic, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is about three men who go prospecting for gold in the mountains of Mexico, but have their fortunes threatened by internal rancor and local bandits. So this week, we'll be panning for golden nuggets of insight into The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And then next week, we'll be hauling gold bars of perceptiveness with the five bloods. No doubt our opinions will split four ways. <laughs> Up into the forbidding majesty of the great Madre range go men. Their pasts buried in silent secrecy. Their futures hidden in the mystery of adventure. Men drawn together in their search for gold. Dog, soldier of fortune. Howard, the old timer. Curtin, the youngster. And Cody, the intruder. These are the men who tried to tap the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Men with an oath on their lips and muscles in their arms, but men with greed in their hearts. Ready to break their backs, to sell their very souls for gold, fighting shoulder to shoulder against the forces of nature, only to find their greatest enemy is human nature. At a flop house early in the treasure of the Sierra Madre, A seasoned prospector named Howard, played by Walter Houston, the father of director John Houston, offers his fellow unfortunates a little hard-won wisdom about fortune hunting. He believes that gold isn't valuable because it's scarce, but because so many people try and fail to find it, and the price is a reflection of all that hard work and suffering. Howard says, quote, An ounce of gold is worth what it is because of the human labor that went into the finding and getting of it, end quote. Otherwise, it's good for nothing but making jewelry and gold teeth. This is not the first or the last time Howard's perspective proves priceless. 
He also anticipates the inevitability of the noble brotherhood falling apart as the gold begins to pile up. But the value of gold not only reflects the labor of prospectors, but their moral character too. Even if they happen to strike it rich in an untapped and unregistered claim, and the characters in the treasure of Sierra Madre do just that, all gold turns into fool's gold if there happens to be any fools in the group. Their corruptibility makes it a worthless metal. When three strangers make their way through the Mexican interior in search of fortune, it's an inevitability that one of them will be the fool. It's just a question of who. Houston had made his directorial debut seven years earlier in 1941 with the Maltese Falcon, which cast an up-and-coming actor named Humphrey Bogart as the private eye Sam Spade. Houston and Bogart would work together five more times after that, and Bogart's turn here as Fred Dobbs, a shady American drifter in Mexico, uses his star power deceptively. Bogart was always great at working against his natural charisma, whether as ornery and sullen romantic leads in Casablanca or Houston's The African Queen, or when he's downright dangerous, as he is in Nicholas Ray's noir masterpiece in A Lonely Place. When we first meet Dobbs, he barely has two pesos to rub together, so he resorts to seeking out English-speaking tourists and businessmen and seeing if they want to stake a fellow American a meal. He's so ashamed that he can't even look at their faces, so he winds up asking the same man more than once. When he and another American drifter named Bob Curtin, played by Tim Holt, get wrangled into doing a job on an oil rig, they don't get the payment they are offered, but they bond over beers and revenge. After meeting Howard at the Flophouse, Dobbs and Curtin convince the old man to go prospecting with them in the Sierra Madre Mountains near Durango. The three men face the threat of starvation and thirst in the sweltering heat, and they're hounded by bandits led by Goldhat, who doesn't need no stinking badges to mete out his own form of justice. But there actually happens to be gold in Dem Hills, and between Howard's mining expertise and Dobbs and Curtin's work ethic, they succeed in panning a fortune in it. The trouble comes later, when greed gives way to paranoia and suspicion and violence, just as Howard had predicted. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre is a hugely entertaining adventure, with real location work that adds a grimy, often physical authenticity to an already tense situation. But it's also a deeply moral film, in that the search for gold becomes a way of revealing the essence of its characters. When the three men come to an agreement on how they'll divvy up the loot, none of them are scheming to steal the other's share. It's only when they're placed in the situation that their decency is tested, and they find out who they are. The fun of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre is that we share in their surprise. Vengan acá todos. Vengan a ver esta palomita que me encontré en su nido. <laughs> Está echadita. Oiga, señor. We are federales. You know. The mountain police. If you're the police, where are your badges? Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Better not come any closer. No sea tonto, hombre. We didn't try to do you any harm. Why don't you try to be a little more polite? Give us your gun, and we'll leave you in peace. I need my gun myself. Oh, uh, throw that old iron over here. We'll pick it up and go our way. You go anyway without my gun and go quick. All right. All right. Vámonos para atrás. All right, so Treasure Sierra Madre, is anyone uh, uh, going to dispute its classic status? What is your history with this film first, and uh, how did it hold up for you this time? You know, guys, I, I know this movie has a reputation as a classic <laughs> and that, uh, that people really love it for some reason, but I just, no, I'm, I'm, I'm joking with you. This is one of my all-time favorite movies. Okay. Um, I was I was so excited when I realized we would have a chance to talk about this movie because The Five Bloods not only has a strong basis in it, but references it very directly. I couldn't tell you when I first encountered this film. I assume it was during my uh, watch the classics phase in college, but Every time I watch it, it's one of the few films that I've rewatched a bunch of times because there's so much of it that's iconic, that sticks with me, that I end up forgetting a lot of it. It's one of the few films that every time I watch it, it feels like the first time again. I know where it's going to go, but it's so well crafted in terms of its split points, its roads not taken, its foreshadowing and, and setups and teases uh, that every time I kind of hope maybe this will be the time people make better choices. <laughs> and it's it's so well constructed in setting up situations where there are no right choices. One of my favorite things about this film is that it does such 
such a great job of of letting Humphrey Bogart's character set up like no win situations for everybody else. Really, from the moment he starts showing his his greed and showing his paranoia and showing his true colors, he corners them into these situations where literally no matter what they do, it's going to be wrong. And it just it racks up the tension, like very few movies. I feel like there are a ton of, of films about heists gone wrong, where everybody's rich, and then they can't trust each other, and they betray each other. There are a ton of movies about people who make wrong choices that lead them into worse choices that lead them into worse choices. But this is one of the few movies I've ever seen that just has this kind of like rolling situation of people keep doing effectively the right things to keep the situation going. But the deeper they get into it, the more the paranoid character schemes to corner them into places where like, they know it's just going to get worse. They know that there's no good way out. They know that absolutely no matter what he says, they're going to be in the wrong. It's, it's deliciously malicious. I love it so much. Yeah, I'm a fan too. I, I think it's maybe only the second <laughs> time I saw it, but I think the first time I saw it was projected, which was pretty cool. And then I got to say, I, but I, I didn't remember just what a gorgeous looking movie this was until rewatching mm-hmm. it, uh, like an HD transfer on, on HBO Max. And I don't know that, that John Houston, uh, he knew what he was doing. Uh, you know, uh, I'm just going to say it. But um, I could echo a lot of what Tasha just said. I love the fact that Bogart plays it so you go from pity to detesting this character without really too many stops along the way either. He is an example of, of the corrupting influence of what they're talking about. Uh, it just corrupts him so quickly and, and yet believably so in part because of the way he plays it, in part because you have uh, all the setup basically telling you this is going to go awry. Howard, although he's, you know, uh, he pitches his lot in with them at the first chance he gets, uh, he knows how these situations play out anyway. Good movie, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Genevieve, how about you? Well, Keith, I have to correct you. This was actually your third time seeing it because this was a Dissolve movie of the week. And you and I did a forum on it. And Tasha wrote a a very great keynote on it called The Subversive Masculinity of Treasure of the Sierra Madre. All right. So three times then. But you forgetting makes me feel better about admitting that I forgot that we had done this as a movie of the the week. And and because when we did it as a movie of the week, I had not seen it before. That was my first time seeing it. And when we were first talking about about doing this pairing, I was like, oh, great, another classic that I haven't seen that I'm going to have to admit that I haven't seen before. But then I was like, oh, wait, I have seen this. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that kind of speaks to kind of what Tasha was saying is like, every time you rewatch it, it's kind of a new experience, provided you have like some space in between. I think it's been five years since, since we did that movie of the week. And even the first time I watched it, there was so many sort of cultural touchstone moments that were familiar to me having not seen it like rewatching it like all those moments were there but also these other moments that had become familiar and then forgotten apparently but what i was uh was interesting to me on this watch was how much more keyed in I was to the character of Howard than the first time around. I think probably understandably I was very keyed in to Humphrey Bogart and and Dobbs's arc. I mean, obviously he is the protagonist and, you know, he's Humphrey Bogart and it is a very sort of against type performance in a lot of ways, but not in that many ways. And the outside of like the happy prospector jig, I didn't really have context for Howard's character the first time I watched it. So being aware of how his character fit into the story this time and kind of watching how he is established as this unexpected hero almost from the jump is really interesting. And, and Tasha, you wrote about that in your keynote back when we did it as a movie of the week, kind of how Howard is the unexpected figure of masculinity. And I didn't read that until after this rewatch, but I was like, oh, yeah, 100%. That's what I was like really focused on. And I feel this time was that was that character. Yeah, you feel like he's going to be comic relief, but he's actually the mm-hmm. most complex and insightful character in the movie. Right. And you just, you catch really, really early on that he sees how things are going. And that speech about gold, you talked about it in the keynote, Scott. It's, yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it like sets the table for everything. 
It is amazing on a rewatch just how much of this film is it's not just foreshadowed, but like five and six shadowed. <laughs> it, like that speech sums it up, but there are several more places where, uh, like when they're talking about how much gold looks like sand, when they're talking about the Norther, when they're talking about the particular ways that the bandits behave, like every major twist in this film is set up well in advance, and you still just generally don't see things coming. Even sort of Dobbs's nature, we get these hints about, not they're not even hints, his nature is very clearly telegraphed in the opening in, in Tampico when he's trying to get someone to stake a, a fellow American for a meal. And every time he gets, you know, a peso, he, you know, he spends it on a drink or he spends it on a shave or he goes to the brothel, you know, and he just like, <laughs> it, it, like, there's no real point, I guess, to his uh, accumulation of money. He's just doing it out of at that point i think we assumed survival but in the context of what happens it, it, we see that it's maybe just sort of his nature to not think past the immediate gratification of where his greed is leading him just a side note when bogart shaves and has his hair slicked back that's really strange like he yeah. doesn't look like a humphrey bogart he looks like yeah. a different person entirely <laughs> yeah no i joked to my husband as we were watching it that he, he said the same thing like uh, that he just he looks so unnatural and i was like mm -hmm. it's like homer simpson he's he's gonna have a five five o'clock shadow by the time he walks out of that barber it'll be fine uh, and sure enough like two shots later he's got a beard again because so much time has passed that sequence on the mountaintop where they're talking about what they're going to do with their money and uh curtain has this like whole plan laid out for himself that's kind of buried in in his past and sentimentality and an idea for the like a, a large expansive emotional idea for the future and dobbs idea of what he wants to do with his money is basically go be a big man and act like an asshole mm -hmm. and then they <laughs> send, and they're like, send the, half his food back at the restaurant <laughs> even if there's nothing wrong with it just because yeah. he can and they're like okay and then what, what comes after that and he's like uh <laughs> i mean uh, like the the answer there is I'm, I'm gonna go to another brothel and howard cuts that line of conversation off but you don't get the sense that there is anything more after the brothel you don't get the sense that there's any big plans or, or grand schemes like he doesn't as he insists that they get more and more and more money and he gets squirrelier and squirrelier about how they can manage it he's also not doing it with any purpose in mind. There's not a business that he wants to found that takes $50,000. There's not a place that he wants to go that takes $45,000. He just, he wants the money for the money. And like, he's both of the worst about having any reason to want to do this and the worst about insisting that they do it. But I think I'm going to take Dobbs as a point of view here. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be Dobbs for a second. Is there something to the argument that maybe he understands money and understands you know the culture is is just people getting ripped off isn't that sort of reinforced by this job that they end up taking on the rig this is what you do when you have money you rip people off you take everything for yourself yeah you know, i guess to a point curtain is sort of reacting against that he's he's got more character but i think dobbs has grown into a certain way of seeing the world that encourages selfishness and greed and um, corruptibility and like a lack of any kind of, you know, moral sense at all. Well, I think, you know, this is where you have to ask what brought Dobbs and mm -hmm. Curtin for that matter to Tampico to to begin with, like, we don't really have backstory for for why they're there. But, you know, at this point, it was a it was a Mexican oil town, you know, it was people were going there to I guess get rich, but although I don't, I don't really know how the how logistically like an American would get rich working in an oil town. But I, I don't know. I guess I can see the goal there, but so it was ostensibly greed that drew him there to to begin with, but not necessarily a dream of something bigger. I think it's just like he went where the money was. At least that's how I took it. I mean, the other thing, too, about Mexico and a lot of these films, too, is that it's a place where they're fleeing from something, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're no longer welcome in America for certain criminal reasons, mm, yeah. then, you, then you kind of slip below the border and try your luck there. It's by the ocean, too. I mean, you know, you could probably just kind of wash up there from various uh, misadventures if you were uh, the person of his character. 
There's also the sense that money might be worth a little more there, you know, that you might be able to live kind of cheaply. And there's always just sort of that sense if you're if you know you're going to be in and out of work, you want to be someplace warm where you can sleep outside. You want to be someplace maybe a little lawless where the cops aren't going to come and clear you off for sleeping in too nice a neighborhood or sleeping where where people can see you. So there's definitely a sense that he and Curtin have both kind of moved into the public park where they're sleeping on benches. And nobody's particularly disturbing them there, which you don't necessarily get the sense might be true in San Francisco or New York or L.A., for instance. The thing that I am stuck on with the film, and I said this as much in the keynote, is that I really feel like when they come to terms, you know, about how they're going to split the money or whatever, like, I think they all sincerely believe that that is the way things are going to go i don't feel like dobbs for example is hatching a scheme at that moment i think that the acquisition of the gold is what ends up triggering greed paranoia everything else like it's something he ends up discovering about himself and that we discover about him right or wrong no, I think you're right. You get the feeling having this sort of money uh, or any sort of money has just been purely theoretical to him and it's all like sort of a new experience. And there's a scene where he talks about how that would be enough. He could just get out and, and it's, it is foreshadowing as you, as you say, but you get the feeling it's someone who's never really had to deal with any kind of wealth in anything except for you know, dreaming about it. I think that's where I come back to the character of Howard as sort of illustrative of how the the seeds of this dissolution of Dobbs' morality were were there. Because Howard, like he buys in, and Curtin too, but they they like buy into the same agreement, but he just, his moral center is such that he is able to you know resist tumbling down the hill that that the Dobbs does and it's really important that we have sort of the spectrum of character in these characters to kind of unearth the question of what is like one's what is human nature versus what is in one's individual nature I love that performance too. Walter Houston is such a scene stealer. <laughs> I like all three of them. Actually, Me too, I, yeah. I, I think I think uh, Curtin is you know kind of by default sort of the bland middle ground, but he's got he's some... the straight man of the piece. He's yeah. he's the traditional hero in a story that doesn't really have much use for the traditional hero. But he's not like overtly heroic either. Like the the scene that always that I always think of first with him is when the mine caves in on Dobbs and Curtin has that moment of pause of like, what if I just left him in there? Uh, that mm-hmm. might be okay, you know. But he moves past that. But the fact that we do have that moment of pause with him, I think, is is really important to establishing that he's not, you know, the upright hero that you know he seems. And and you know the fact that he does beat the crap out of that guy in the bar with Dobbs and he does agree to kill um what's what's the, the Cody yeah, well, they, I mean, he they all three agree to Cody. Cody though I mean even right. even, uh, even Howard is, is yeah. uh, ready to shed blood but that seems like born more out of loyalty to the other two than any fear about Cody like even when it's a bad idea he's going to go with the group because he's thrown his lot in with them for better or worse he votes for it when he's the swing vote, when he's the one who could determine it either way. And that may be to some degree out of a, a fear of pushing Dobbs even further over the edge, because mm-hmm. Dobbs already pretty far out. But uh, it, I mean, also to play devil's advocate, because uh, like I, I can't feel for Dobbs in this movie, but I do kind of feel for all three men when they figure that maybe killing Cody is the best way to go. Mm-hmm. It always surprises me that he's such a small part of the movie, because there's so much potential there. But when you have somebody who ignores all social standards, who ignores all common sense and forces himself on you and then says, basically, I'm going to be part of this, whether you want me to or not. Like what always comes to to my mind is like, if you have to share the labor and share the gold, that's not a bad thing. But this guy's already proved that he's going to violate all possible norms. This guy has already proved he's dishonest and he's going to insinuate in and, and take what he wants. Who's to say that this is the last stage of it? Obviously, like, I don't go about murdering people who, like, step into my personal spaces at uh, at parties or whatever. But I feel like in this scenario... I mean, if they're not wearing him, a mask, you might. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> like, I, I, I pull down my mask and kill them by association. 
you know, it's it's the safest way to provide her herd immunity is to kill off anybody not wearing a mask. But <laughs> I, I think that their decision to kill him here is one of the more justified like decisions to kill somebody who's not overtly a villain that we see in, you know, one of one of these like 40s and 50s, like hard fisted uh, manly men kind of movies like they they come to it reluctantly. They come to it nervously, but they come to it because they know they're out in the middle of nowhere. Here's a stranger that they can't trust who is bent on forcing them to do what he says. And it's their best choice. Well, yeah, but there's that, that moment where they realize they could cut him in for any future earnings and the excuse that other people might have followed him up there or whatever it is they use to justify it feels a little thin to me. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. I feel like the cut him in on future earnings plan would be fine if you weren't already a super greedy, corrupt person at heart. That, that That's what I'm saying is like, right. that part of the plan is fine. It, there's just no reason to believe that he'll stop at that because he already has not stopped at sure. pushing himself in where he's not wanted and where he's like openly being threatened. It's an interesting character because I see how his actions are threatening, but I still like just in the movie, I don't perceive him as a threat. I perceive him as like another guy who's, you know, and, and especially with the backstory we we get uh, about him in the, via the letter from his wife. I think he is also, I don't want to say running a con, but, you know, he's got a plan, you know, and, and he's acting on it. And these guys are a part of that plan. I don't necessarily like I guess it's taking advantage of them. And that is kind of underhanded, but I still, I don't know, maybe it's in the performance, maybe it's just in the look of the guy who looks very much like your moral upstanding Western hero type, but I just... He was Tarzan. Oh, really? <laughs> the, sec- the second Tarzan after Johnny Weissmuller. He, cha- he changed his name because he, got, he was getting typecast. He, he was, his real name is uh, Bruce Burks, I think, I believe. Oh, look at that. Um, yep, Keith coming with the trivia. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. Does anyone else kind of have that feeling about him that like he's like maybe not such a bad guy? I think that you get the reveal that he's not the bad guy after he's dead. I mean, I, I think that it, it's just one of those things that I love about the movie that stair step from he seems like kind of a sleaze in the town where he's cuddling up to to Curtin mm-hmm. and asking him a lot of leading questions and getting a lot of very awkward lies. And you can tell from the beginning that what he's saying isn't really the truth. What he pretends to want isn't really what he wants. Yeah. He comes across as a con artist, which makes him dangerous in this environment. And then when he pushes his way into the camp, he seems about as trustworthy and upright as uh, you could possibly imagine because he is basically putting his life in other men's hands yeah and then they decide no we're going to murder you and he stands up to it pretty bravely and then 30 seconds later uh howard is saying like hey friend here, here's a weapon right and <laughs> just with the implication that like of course we're all buddies what what else would we do under these circumstances and then the, the post-death reveal gives you a very sentimental version of him. So despite the fact that he's a very compressed character who could be excised from the movie without really you losing anything whatsoever, you get a whole different like like miniature arc with a bunch of different steps for him. And you can kind of project back a little bit from that moment, too. I mean, from yeah. after he's gone and, and you read that letter of just like, at what place was he? I mean, he's a fortune hunter. He's got a family. There's got to be a certain whiff of desperation to the actions that he takes. And so he makes a very risky calculation, but not a crazy calculation. And in fact, he explains to them very clearly the options that they have, which which reminds me that that scene was plucked pretty heavily in an episode of Breaking Bad, because I just watched Breaking Bad again. There's a bit where Walter White is confronted out in the middle of nowhere by Gus Fring, and he's like, the way I see it, you've got two options. Option A is to kill me. Option B is this, this, and that. I like option B. Um, so, uh, in any case, I, I think we can maybe project a little bit of desperation on his, his part. I mean, he's out there to hunt a fortune. He is correctly snuffed out that there is one to be had, and then he makes a dangerous but not completely foolhardy choice to kind of leverage his way into the group and it just doesn't doesn't work out for our guy. Yeah, I mean, on the positive side, you can see that he's desperate, that he's trying to support a family, that he's trying to get back to his wife, that he's probably spent a lot of time hunting gold and failing, and he sees a way to possibly pay off his life and get back to what he left behind. On the other hand, we see the months of work that our little trio put into this, and he wants to just like walk in and take advantage of all of that work. You know, he, he wants to basically just walk in and get cut in on the heist because he 
happened to see the robbers leaving the bank. And I understand why they feel protective of all of the time and investment and work they put into finding that claim. And they don't want a stranger to come along, even if he is willing to shoulder uh, a lot of the labor. They don't want somebody else taking advantage of what they've accomplished, because what they've accomplished isn't just the daily work of pulling the gold out of the mountain. It's heading deep into the brush and finding that place in the first place when nobody else did. Which they wouldn't have been able to do without Howard to begin with. You know, so much money and attention was spent on using real locations for the film. Uh, what, what kind of impact uh, do you think they have? I mean, that sequence with the, the old convent is pretty amazing. The, the opening one where uh, where Dobbs sees it from across the plane and momentarily it's like he's found a town. You think he might be safe. And then you realize it's just, it's derelict land. And then later when uh, the rescue team is galloping around inside it, looking for the, any sign of the gold, like you really get a sense of that, that space and that place. It feels so lonely and so ancient and so abandoned. It's just it's kind of a symbol for like everything that's built up over the course of the the movie so far. This this friendship, this plan, all of this hard work. It's just come to like a bunch of of piled up and falling over stones in the desolate middle of nowhere. I like seeing the streets of Tampico too, which yeah. uh, I, yeah. that really helped as well because you know you don't really see that part of the world in this era of movies. Yeah, I really like the the bar cantina where the the beatdown happens or early in in the film. Like it's it's just so cavernous in a way that you don't really expect a place like that to be, and it really provides a a nice setting for what is a a pretty brutal fight while also being a a very sloppy fight. (laughs) I love that so much. It's not cinematic at all. It's it's not at all what you expect from either a bar fight or a beat down in an adventure movie. Mm -hmm. It's, it's desperate, you know, there's the fist smacks are so puny, you know, like, like, couldn't they have found a bigger pig to to slap (laughs) to hit with a sledgehammer? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And and I noticed that too. Like, there's, there's no sense that some poor frozen animal is getting whacked with a baseball bat. It's it's (laughs) like somebody is actually just holding his fist up. And kind of doing yeah. that into the mic. But yeah, you know, Pat keeps trying to kind of uh, like stagger out and they keep crawling for his feet and just hanging on to him in a in the kind of desperation that you normally see in movies from this era from like a housewife trying to keep her man from walking out on her. There's just there's nothing <laughs> yeah. again. You know, as with that essay I wrote, there's there's nothing big and masculine about this fight. Yeah. You, you can see everybody's desperation as it wears on. And when Pat finally surrenders it's uh it's pretty much just uh, all right i'm i'm tired i there's no way for me to get back up and hit you again just please stop there's an extent to which all movies you know certainly movies that are set in real locations are do- are documentaries and so that that element is like as keith was saying just seeing tampico in in the late 40s as it was is amazing i mean that's just it's just something to see but i think that the other the other thing that struck me about the film is that it is a film about physical struggles i mean you know it's not easy to get up that mountain it's not easy to mine for gold and it's certainly not easy to be to be engaged in what ends up being you know a, a fight to the death in terms of who ends up coming away with that money in you know real locations lend that authenticity that's so critical for the physical part of the film to play out and then just little touches just the way all the characters looked i mean it's it's a very you know these are grizzled people these are people who haven't shaved in a while they're sweating like hell and they're dirty and it's just like the film has a nice just a very strong texture to it that heightens the drama yeah, you really end up with a lot of sequences of Humphrey Bogart with just so much dirt and mud caked into his hair and his pores that you can taste it. But one of the things I really like about the location as well is just the sense of elevations. You know, there's a lot is made of the advantage, getting the height advantage, uh, Star Wars style in a gunfight and how huge that is, even when you're dealing with a larger force that can't make their way up the hill against you. Looking out over the cliffs and being able to see the bandits coming an hour away, being able to look down over the cliffs and, and see at a, at a far distance, the Federales chasing the bandits off. There's a sense of, of Western style mm-hmm. scale and scope to the outdoors, but there's also just a sense of like the, the lay of the land is very important in this story in terms of where people are positioned and how they use that positioning. 
Yeah, I was going to bring up uh, that very scene of seeing the bandits far in the distance is sort of an illustration of how the locations give this sense of scope. But what I find interesting, too, especially in the context of this being like a, I guess, neo-Western, like it's playing with, with Western conventions. I don't know if you can call it a traditional Western. Yeah, I don't, because yeah. I, I, I have a still unpublished list of the greatest Westerns, uh, and it was, like, you know, you look around at other what other people say are great Westerns, you kind of pull other people, and it came up, but I, I still see it as a Western. I mean, it's yeah. pretty close. I mean, well, a is a train robber? I mean, it's like a, you know, yeah. train Yeah, sure, there's, there's it, automobiles. It's got a lot of the archetypes, but none of them oil rigs, really, yeah. It's, you know. it's borderline, for sure. Yeah, but to go back to my point, you know, within the shots they give you the sense of scope they're not necessarily framed in this like majestic vista way that i often associate with westerns where it's just like look at the beautiful landscape and this is not a film that is particularly fixated on the the beauty of the natural world so much as the impact of it you know the forbidding qualities yeah of it too yeah. Yeah, I mean, you get that when you're they're heading up the mountain. The perspective you get of the mountain is their perspective. It isn't like a long shot as you right. would expect. It's like them looking up and going, oh, God, we have to kind of like get up to that point in order to find what we're looking for. This is this is terrible, and I wasn't ready for this at all. <laughs> it's effective, and you're, and you're right in that, in that I think from, from a traditional Western, you might expect a little bit more feel or, or, lo- or love for the, the, the landscape. It's not just... Even if it's just, just like a matte painting. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So are there any uh, big standout moments for you? I mean, we don't need those stinking badges. It's certainly the most quotable line. Mm-hmm. But there are pl- see- plenty of great scenes in the movie. Uh, what uh, what stands out for you? What struck me uh, uh, this time was the brilliant construction of that scene where they're all discussing what to do if Cody shows up. <laughs> and it's like, well, he's right there. You know, just uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that was that was great. But I mean, just in general, I, I appreciate the way this is an episodic film in many ways, but the episodes kind of flow so beautifully in, from one to the other that and it kind of just coast you along with it. Uh, yeah, I appreciated that about it as well. One of the ones that always just completely like takes me aback and, and takes my breath away, literally, is the sequence where Howard is trying to save the life of the young Indian boy mm-hmm. who fell into the water and, and breathed water and is in shock. That scene just plays out so silently and in such an unhurried way as he goes through what he calls his old Boy Scout tricks, um, trying to increase the boy's circulation and eventually uh, sitting him upright. And he's surrounded by just this silent crowd of Indians watching him to see what he does and uh, crossing themselves and, and observing and hoping and praying, but not not saying anything, not interfering. It's this hushed and breathless moment, and it's it's just astonishing. And then when the little boy opens his eyes, the camera starts pulling away and showing you this, the scope of the village and showing you that there aren't just the dozens of people you thought were there. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them all lined up and perfectly silent watching this play out. And it's just, it's a moment that turns what feels like a very intimate scene into something that feels like religious ritual. It's, mm. it's so staggering. There's that sequence. And then there's the uh, just incredibly Shakespearean sequence where Dobbs comes back from what he thinks is the murder of Curtin and starts talking to himself. Uh, it's very somewhere between a, a Lady Macbeth monologue and an Edgar Allan Poe monologue as he starts wondering, like, is he really dead? What's become of the body? What will become of the body? Will the body be taken care of? Will I be caught? Did I do this wrong? Do I need to go back? And he talks him, and then he starts, uh, you know, talking about about the cold and and the the pangs of conscience, and it's it's almost a ridiculous monologue compared to so much of the rest of the movie that that's delivered in tense dialogue between people. But at the same time, I, I think Bogey just like pulls it off really well and just really brings across the the pangs of it being experienced by somebody who basically has gone mad and maybe didn't realize it until he took what he thinks is an unalterable step off, off into the deep end. And even so, he's he's still trying to find a way to justify it to himself and to find a point where he can live with it, uh, just like alone in the dark talking to himself. It's ugh, it's so good. It's so staggering. 
Well, you stole mine, Tasha. Uh, that, was, that was what I was going to uh, name as a standout in, in particular this time because of De Five Bloods, but we can unpack that next week. But it's, I guess, directly referenced or, or very, very strongly referenced uh, in, in that film. So, of course, it stood out within this pairing. So I'll just, as I think Scott said, it's a very episodic film in a lot of ways. And that's, I think, particularly true during the middle stretch of the film where they are mining the gold and the paranoia uh, is creeping in. And just like two moments that I really like as sort of illustrations of that creeping paranoia among all of them is the scene where they're all kind of leaving the tent after each other (laughs) in the the dark. It's come around to my turn again, but I'll stay here. Yeah, it's just it it's it's funny you know while while also being very important to the narrative progression of the film and then also the the gila monster you know confrontation yeah. which is I, I mean that's i think the ending shot when when he lifts the the rock up and it's revealed that curtain was not lying and the gila monster was there like i think that just the the image of that giant lizard on top of these these bags of gold is you know evocative in its own way but also just sort of the the tension of of that interaction and what we know to be true versus how we see Dobbs perceiving what is happening. It's a very moment of like, oh, yeah, this guy is losing it <laughs> kind of kind of scene. So I like both of those. I wanted to highlight three Walter Houston moments <laughs> because uh, <laughs> I just love that character so much. Pulling a Tasha, uh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> they're all sort of related to each other in terms of revealing who who he is. Really, I mean, first is the is the jig, the prospecting jig, which is one, which is just amazing to see. And I and I like when we see it, which is which is not when they've actually struck gold, but just the indicator that they're on the right track. He knows that they've found something, even if the other two guys have no idea what they're doing. Uh, I like that. Uh, the other scene is I like is when is after he has saved the boy in the hammock, getting uh, getting uh, tequila, <laughs> all right. getting all, you know, just absolutely loving every moment of that. Uh, and then that ties in again to the end where he and Curtin discover that all of the gold they've collected has been slashed up and sort of scattered to the Sca- winds and has, has, has once again become worthless and in his reaction to that and Curtin's eventually too is to laugh and and I think and I think all three scenes indicate that Howard knows how to be happy it know you know it can identify what happiness is and that it doesn't isn't necessarily related to money that you know it can be related to money but that's that, that is his pursuit is to find is to get himself into a place where, where happiness is possible. And m- maybe money is the way to do it, but then it kind of isn't, and he's fine with it. You know, yeah. and He's fine with the gold being... He's a lament for a moment that the gold is... Uh, is gone because he's he's now in this place where he can be you know himself and and um be around people that he likes and and uh he's fine and it's just i i, I like that and I, I i like that perspective and i think it's he, you know he, he's earned it i mean you know because he's been our, our kind of you know the moral center of the film i guess and and um you know and so the film rewards him with that in keeping with that idea of the the moral hero, the Howard moment that stands out for me is a much smaller thing. It's it's not really underlined. You have to be watching for it, but it's just it's one of the things that grabs me most about this movie every single time. And that's when Dobbs starts talking about how he wants everybody to split up the the take every night and everybody to be in charge of their own goods. And Howard just kind of like slips him a little side look and then just says in this perfectly equitable way, it doesn't matter to me. We can do it however you like. And you can see on his face, like on, on Walter's face, just that moment of, okay, here we go. How are we going to manage this? And how are we going to make it work? And it's it's such a subtle piece of acting. But throughout the the entire rest of that scene, Howard just goes out of his way to play this in a very... I'm not going to buck anything that you're that you're pushing. Like we're all friends here. Whatever paranoid fantasy you have in your head right now is fine. Just just don't hurt me. And it's done in such a a charming, charismatic, let's all get along kind of way. But he is unquestionably manipulating Dobbs. He is unquestionably drawing on these these past experiences of things gone wrong. And you just you get the sense that somewhere in the back of his head is okay, the, the countdown clock just started. Now we just have to see how this plays out. For sure. 
Well, we're going to have uh, plenty of opportunities to talk about countdown clocks and uh, <laughs> and other and uh, other other uh, signs of trouble in the Five Bloods uh, next week. Uh, but for now, we'll take a break and come back with feedback. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. A few weeks ago, we were thrilled to have Vulture film critic Allison Wilmore on the show to talk about The Haunting and Shirley, and it would appear that our listeners were thrilled too. Tasha, want to read us this first letter? Sure. This one's from Christopher. He writes, First of all, while of course we missed Genevieve and Tasha, it was a wonderful surprise to hear the dulcet tones of Alison Wilmore again. I still miss her and Matt on SVU, so it was great to hear from her again. And I was very excited about this pairing as well, since I'm generally a fan of Shirley Jackson, and especially of the film of The Haunting. Although the question I have for you guys does not really have to do with the pairing directly. You mentioned in your discussion of The Haunting how Robert Wise has quite the eclectic career as a director. For me, this has always been one of his great strengths. He's able to adjust his style or approach to the material that he's working with at the moment. However, Wise often gets ignored in discussions of the great American film directors, and I feel it is often due to this aspect of his work, that is, that he's not an auteur in the traditional sense of the term. He does not have distinctive style or approach, nor does he have particular themes that he explores in an obsessive way throughout his body of work. This often means that he gets dubbed a workman director, or worse, a hack, and he's certainly neither of those. What other directors, either from the past or currently working, do you think get the short end of the critical or audience appreciation stick because of this lack of being an auteur? Do we need a different set of critical approaches slash questions to more fully appreciate directors like Wise? What would those be? I think it's well-timed, this letter, because you know yep. John Huston is another person who, who kind of falls into that category, too. I think he gets more respect than Wise, who doesn't necessarily want, you know, lack for respect, but uh, he fits exactly the description of what you're talking about as someone who doesn't have the signatures, doesn't have the obsessive, uh, ele- you know, pursuit of elements, as you said, but makes great movies by and large, you know. Uh, but I mean, the, Houston's filmography is all over the place, too. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so many films and like it's you know it's a long way from the Maltese Falcon to Annie, but this is the same director who did who did each of them, you know. I'm, I'm having a, a sense of deja vu from our working girl discussion because I feel like we had a sort of a, a similar observation about Mike Mike Nichols on on that one, just in terms of you know the scope of a career that has a, a lot of great films in it, but also not a whole lot of connective tissue between those great films. For me, I think there's a difference between a John Huston or even a Robert Wise and a Michael Curtiz, who's a great director who made yeah. great movies. But I really feel like he was someone who would just – you could just – the studio would plug them in to whatever movie needed to be made and he would find a way to make it very well most of the time. Uh, I feel like there's a little bit more, uh, especially with Houston, more of a sort of a – uh, you know, born filmmaker element to them. Like, this is, this is what they have to do. And, and uh, they're going to, you know, go where the work is. But um, I don't know, there's, there's more, I don't want to say personality, but there, you can definitely feel like you could put together uh, an arc of a career with, with Houston in a way you, you can't with some other directors who might meet some of the same qualifications. I mean, you think about the connection too between the Treasure of Sierra Madre and you know the man who would be king or something. I mean, they, like well, Fat a City. Lot of, I mean, he's just you know he's yeah. really interested in marginal characters too. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there's something to be said, but I mean, John Huston is the classic example of the director who has never really thought about it as an auteur, who's but yet who nonetheless has a, an incredible list of titles associated with his name. I mean, the, the thing about the the auteur thing was really just about trying to separate the Hitchcocks and the Hawkses from the Curtises to look at the Hollywood system and recognize certain filmmakers who had stylistic signatures that connected one film to the next. I mean, the the the, the definition of it, the way the term is applied now is so much is is, is much different than what it was when it was first coined but i think it is generally a term that we like to apply to filmmakers with a strong identifiable personal vision and sometimes some some high quality directors don't have that and that's fine right yeah and it's weird because hawks is all over the place in terms of the types of films he made 
But you're, there is a, a hawk's feel in a way that you wouldn't necessarily get with some mm-hmm. of the other people we're talking about. And Houston, I've, I've never understood why he wasn't considered an auteur, because maybe maybe I just haven't seen enough of his like smaller, more, more marginal, less famous films. But the films that made his name do all seem to have a through line in common to me that it seems very identifiable. Like he makes films about a grand heroic striving that often is doomed because the the people involved are are small and, and fragile men with big and not very fragile egos. Like Daddy Warbucks. They, <laughs> like Daddy uh, Warbucks. Yeah. Yes, that's that's exactly the movie I was thinking of. <laughs> but uh, you know, even if he doesn't have a a visual signature, I just I feel like he has such strong narrative interests, like such strong and and specific foci. And you also have to remember that uh, some of the the biggest movies that he made, I mean, Treasure of the Sierra Madre was uh it was considered a flop in its day. Like it it wasn't. It didn't make no money, if I can double negative it, uh, but it certainly didn't live up to expectations. And it, it took quite a while for it to slowly grow in reputation and be considered a classic, probably for the one of the same reasons that uh, so many other really, really good movies kind of didn't do well in their day is it's it's kind of dour. It, it comes to a, a hard and sad ending that maybe isn't what people expected out of a Western or uh, even a Humphrey Bogart movie. But I, I think if you take time into account, if you take the fact that we had to wait so long for him to to make an, enough movies that people can kind of see that distinctiveness and come to appreciate his movies, then maybe some of the people that we're seeing today that maybe aren't being identified enough as auteurs, Jeremy Sonier comes to mind as somebody yeah. who came out the door with a movie that everybody, uh, Blue Ruin people were just like, uh, this is the heralding of a, an amazing new talent. And then his next movie, Green Room, people were like, okay, this is also great, but what is it? Who is this guy? Uh, and then the movie that he made for Netflix, uh, it, it seemed like people just got sort of confused. It's, I think it's, he's such a, a precision filmmaker. He has such a strong eye and a strong ethos, but his themes aren't log lineable. You know, they aren't, they aren't simple and obvious and you can't look at all of his movies and just say, oh yeah, they're, they're all this and they all look this way. It may be that over time we'll come to see more of the patterns, but like he's still early in his filmmaking career. Maybe he's just not being seen as an auteur yet uh, because, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have a John Huston filmography under him yet and we don't have the perspective. That said, it's going to be really hard for movies to withstand the test of time if they're coming out these days because there's so much coming out and it's all just kind of like dumped into the slurry of the streaming services and VOD. <laughs> so it, it is hard harder today for somebody to to make a reputation over time yeah i feel like there's a lot for future archaeologists uh, of pop culture to sort through from this era of overabundance in which even those of us who are you know paid to keep up with things can't keep up with things just just quibi alone yeah exactly <laughs> i mean you guys i'm spending like five hours a day just trying to catch up on quibi right oh, now it's, it's exhausting I'm, I'm, i am two parts into a 10-part documentary is my first quibi um so that's like what 18 minutes of (laughs) i watched yeah i think so i think i watched about 18 minutes of a documentary about the uh donald sterling era of the saint of the los angeles clippers so uh, we'll i'll let you know how that turns out but uh watching on the phone is super annoying (laughs) can you watch it on on your ipad at least my ipads are they're so ancient i don't think they probably even download the technology Mm. um i think you can project them onto your tv it's it's not worth talking about before we move on, I just want to note the Jeremy Sonier movie. I couldn't remember the name of uh, the Netflix movie was Hold the Dark. Mm-hmm. And Blue Ruin wasn't his first movie. Uh, Murder wasn't. Party was his first movie. Uh, that was uh, tiny and, and strange and bloody as hell and a lot of fun to watch. But Blue Ruin was his his breakout film. And again, you look at the gap between Murder Party and Blue Ruin. And apart from the, the gore level, it's almost hard to see that as the same director. So, I, you know, again, you just kind of have that, that sense of like, okay, where's the pattern he likes lovingly choreographed violence Mm -hmm. but like even the violence in these films doesn't look like from one film to the next uh, like each other so i i admire him hugely as a director but uh i don't i don't know that he has the the auteur stamp of approval 
Yeah, he was supposed to direct all, all of the second season of or the third season. Which which season of True Detective? True Detective, was uh, third, I believe. Third, yeah, and uh, and it didn't work out, so he's only on a couple. Um, it's almost as if that show uh, led to some personality clashes. <laughs> yeah, shocking, right? Yeah. Um, let's move forward with some more haunting talk here. In our episode on The Haunting, we talked about Julie Harris's mesmerizing method performance and how it reportedly alienated the rest of the cast. Our listener Meg provides us with a little more context on that. Genevieve? Meg writes, Hello, I was so thrilled when you said you were doing this movie, one of my favorites. The episode was great, but there was one thing I wanted to add in defense of Julie Harris. If I recall correctly, listening to the commentary tracks on the DVD years ago, while the other actors all had the impression that Harris being so quiet and standoffish was due to her acting method, and I think that's what Harris herself told them, in her commentary, Harris admits that she was not very well at the time. It sounded like she was suffering from depression and the move to England, especially during one of the last London fogs, made it even worse. So while she might have kept herself separate from the others as an acting thing anyway, and to be fair, I think Claire Bloom said she was perfectly nice to work with, I came away thinking that she may have been using that as a cover story for some real distress. Now I'll have to go back and listen to the commentary again for the details. Yeah, I mean, I just was going to leave that letter as it is. It's a good letter, and um, and it was something we kind of tried to talk about. I mean, the the, the difference between that performance and all the other performances is so striking it's just like one era of screen acting coming into conflict with the future era of screen acting uh, but not in a way that is destructive to the film so uh, i appreciate uh, meg giving us a little more context on that though because uh it is a remarkable performance i think this letter is also illustrative of why we should mourn the fact that we don't get commentary tracks anymore (laughs) it wouldn't be that hard you know it would not be that hard i feel like most of the time we we have actors talking about their performances in movies it is during the press cycle for the film and like occasion occasionally you know there'll be like an oral history and anniversary years later but i feel like dvd commentary tracks at their peak just like allowed for more looseness than Mm -hmm. typically happens in the the press cycle for a film I feel like they've also kind of gone out of fashion, like even in places that do things like Criterion hardly ever does uh, commentary tracks anymore. They do lots of other features and they're still trying they, to put, discs, At least but. they've been putting some up on the site though, which has been kind of cool. I mean, yeah, you know, like, been, the new- like the old, the old Scorsese tracks for like Raging Bull and Taxi mm-hmm. Driver were put up recently and those are amazing. And they, they did a whole thing on the Limey with that really famously contentious commentary. I mean, I, I, I love them when they're good. When they're good, they can be really fun. Yeah, but even like, yeah, and uh, I, I was watching uh, the War of the Worlds uh, disc that's coming out, which, uh, heads up, that movie looks amazing with this restoration, but it's got a com- it's got a great commentary trap, but it's from 2005. I just feel like, you know, it, it's turning into a lost art, and I, and I, I, uh, I miss yeah. it. I, I like the commentary tracks. I wonder if, to some degree, there's just a feeling that they've been replaced by podcasts. I was going to say the exact same thing, <laughs> Tasha. <laughs> so, I, my, my husband, one of his all-time favorite commentary tracks is Cameron Crowe and Amory Heckerling on... On Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that commentary track, the movie ends and they just keep talking. You know, the, usually you can tell when uh, people aren't very into their contractual obligation to do a commentary track, because more or less the second the credits start, like they're out of there. And then there are, you know, the cases where you've got some friends or a whole bunch of people in the room, and they're probably drinking and they, they, they just keep going on. But in this case, uh, Hackerley and Crow go on for like another uh, 10 minutes or so, I want to <laughs> and they talk about like maybe they should do other people's movies maybe they should just do movies in general and listening to that what you end up thinking is well this is what podcasts became uh, at least certain kinds of informal podcasts where filmmakers uh, and actors talk about their work so it may just be there may be a feeling that if you want to hear a bunch of people like like talk about the movies they made, you can probably go listen to the podcast where they just spend like an hour or ninety minutes or something talking with another actor or talking with uh you know somebody on the marginalia of Hollywood, bringing in all of their friends to talk. There are a lot of podcasts like that, but it's not all synced up to the movie. True. Well, we should we should note while we're talking about this that Almost Famous, which we did on the show, is going to have a twentieth anniversary five episode podcast um oh really i didn't hear out. this yeah can we talk yeah. amy heckerling into being on it? <laughs> <laughs> I, right, well the one thing i remember about the fast times commentary is how appreciative crow was of certain things that amy heckerling did she's he, i remember him saying 
several times. It's like that's an Amy Heckerling touch or something like that, or that's an, that's something that you added to this. Uh, I thought it was it's very sweet. So yeah, commentary tracks. Um, I guess that's, that becomes our um, unofficial third uh, letter. Um, so uh, thanks very much for that. Um, we, oh come on, come on, listeners, ask us what our favorite commentary tracks are. I've got oh, stories. A, that is a can of worms. Um, we had an entire feature where we just uh, analyzed the commentary tracks of terrible movies, oh, and oh, boy, damn. do I have some memories from Bo- those days. Oh, my bonus episode. Let's do it. <laughs> Patreon Actually, that would be a great bonus episode. Yeah, let's be. do it. All right, we got it. That's, All right, that's what you get until, when you until the then, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll follow another hunt for gold in De Five Bloods, though director Spike Lee has a lot of other things to get off his chest, too. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at Next Picture Pod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we're going through some mighty rough country tomorrow. You better have some beans. <laughs> Oops.